I want to invite you to 2 Chronicles chapter 16. And while you're turning there, a couple of comments. Um, Number one, this is Memorial Day weekend. And I, for one, don't want to pass this weekend and this Lord's Day with you and not offer gratitude to those who have served so we can enjoy the freedom we take advantage of this morning. Um, People have shed their blood so we have the freedom to gather People have uh, suffered, uh, just there's been the loss of life and relationship, and I have relatives that have served and suffered, and I'm assuming some of you have, and I want to thank the Lord for the sacrifice, and I want to encourage you to remember it. It's appropriate to remember. Memorial means you look back and remember for the purpose of a present-day transaction. So you look back. It's like the Lord's Supper. You look back, you call it to mind, and it is meant to provoke appreciation and action. Not just, hey, I remember that, but I remember that, and I'm going to act according to what I remember. So I want to thank the Lord for those who have served on our behalf. Is anyone here a veteran or you have a family member who has served? So thank you for for that service. So I was reading this morning very early an article that included comments that uh, Tom Hanks made at Harvard University recently. He was the commencement speaker. They gave him an honorary doctorate. And uh, he made these comments, and I'm going to lead us in prayer, but before I do, I want you to hear what he said. I was encouraged by it. I think it's relevant, and it resonated with me, and I think it took a bit of courage to say it. He said for the, this is his uh, commencement speech, for the truth to some is no longer empirical. It's no longer based on data, nor common sense, nor even common decency. Telling the truth is no longer the benchmark for public service. It no longer is the salve to our fears or the guide to our actions. Truth is now considered malleable, bendable, by opinion, by zero-sum endgames. Imagery is manufactured with audacity. In other words, people create this kind of, this idea with purpose to achieve the primal task of marring the truth with mock logic to achieve with fake expertise, with false sincerity. He goes on to say, the goal is they play fast and loose with the truth, and indifference to the truth is its enemy. And he talks to the graduating class at Harvard, and he says that uh, the same option for all grown-ups who have to have to... It's the same option for all grown-ups who have to decide to be one of three types of Americans. Those who embrace liberty and freedom for all, those who won't, and those who are indifferent. Only the first group, those who embrace liberty and freedom for all, do the work of creating a more perfect union, a nation indivisible. The others simply get in the way. He said, it's a never-ending battle. This is how he concluded. It's a never-ending battle for the truth that you will officially join as of today. The difference is in how truly you believe and how vociferously you promote and how tightly you hold to the truth that is self-evident that, of course, we are all created equally yet differently. And, of course, we were all in this together. 
If you live in the United States of America, the responsibility is yours. It's ours. The effort is optional, but the truth is, and I like this line, the truth is sacred, unalterable, chiseled into the stone of the foundation of our republic. That's a rare speech in today's culture. And we know the truth to be the word of God and the person of the son of God. And our country at some level was built on that foundation. And we need to have the courage to fight the battle for the truth in the spaces and places that God has providentially put you in. Fundamentally, the first and foremost challenge for the believer who understands the value of truth is to solicit the God of truth to promote leaders who will promote the truth. 1 Timothy 2, Paul to the church, first of all, first of all, priority, job one, prayers, entreaties, petitions, and thanksgiving is to be made on behalf of all men. First of all, entreaties is to beg God. It's on your knees. I don't have it. We desperately need it. Our country needs what we don't have. And guns are not going to secure what God alone can provide. Marching, protesting, whining will not secure what God alone can provide, which is why he says, you solicit me. Worship me. Talk to me. The word uh, petitions has the idea of conversation. Talk to me. And be thankful for all men, and especially those in authority, so that you can live a tranquil and quiet life with the kind of dignity and kind of opportunity that the gospel needs and people need. Can you say amen to that? All right, this is not a political speech. This is a Christian exhortation to pray and to promote with courage the truth because at some level what was said to the graduating class of Harvard is uh, very, very true in a country that seems to have abandoned any common sense and common decency. So join me. Let's pray together, and then we'll look at God's Word, Second Chronicles. Father, thank you this morning for the, the treasure of the truth. Thank you for the revelation of reality. We have been gifted in the Word of God, inspired, inerrant, authoritative, powerful, trustworthy, life-changing, inspired, God-breathed a gift to us. And the personification of the truth and the way, the truth, and the life, your Son, Jesus Christ, who put on flesh and exposed us to the reality of what matters to God and what God is like and how to have a relationship with Him. Lord, it's our prayer today, grateful, first of all, for the United States of America with all of its flaws and challenges. Lord, we're grateful for the freedom we enjoy right now. And uh, Lord, we're asking in the name of our great King that you would show yourself strong for our country, for our state, for those who lead it, both here and in Washington, around the country, that, Lord, you would demonstrate power and deliverance, um, that you would bring conviction and transformation, um, that the Word of God would be honored and the Spirit of God would transform, and Lord, you would rescue us. Uh, there's no prediction 
realistically that would anticipate any kind of substantive change absent your intervention. And we're asking today that you would intervene and you would cause us to be daily prayers, consistent pursuers, and truth promoters, that we would honor you, honor your word, and that you would show yourself strong on our behalf. Thanks for those who have served. Thank you for those who have given their life. We're just grateful, and we pray blessing and encouragement upon those who have lost loved ones, and we just want to express our gratitude for those who gave, and most of all, for the Son who gave, your Son, our Savior, the greatest gift and sufferer of all. Thank you for Jesus Christ. In his name I pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. All right, so last week Johnny commendably spoke about the priority of peace and how to have it. And as he was sharing with you that God has made a declaration that he keeps in perfect peace, shalom, shalom, those whose mind is stayed on him, focused on him, resolved and prioritizing and committed and connected and focused and in meditation on him. Bedrock God, you stay your affection and focus on him. What you can count on is shalom. Shalom, shalom. The word shalom has to do with the absence of conflict. It also has to do with the presence of blessing. So it's not just I don't have turbulence in my life. I am enjoying bounty in my life. And in a world absent peace, the growing anxiety and depression and the volume of challenge in our culture, peace is a relevant subject. So to that end, I'm going to pick up the ball over the next two Sundays, and I'm going to talk about the peace, the path to peace and prosperity. So the subject for the next two Sundays is the path to peace and prosperity. Then I'll get back into James chapter 5 and finish that last chapter eventually. This is an important subject. And to begin that subject, we want to begin with the foundational fact that is housed in this statement of God through the prophet of God to the king of the people of God that should fuel your life. It's the truth. We just talked about the authority of this. The Old Testament is full of people, stories, principles, prescriptions, practices that are valuable to the New Testament believer because God's immutable. He doesn't change what he liked in the Old Testament, what he commended, what he promoted. He still likes, commends, and promotes. So we're going to look at a king of history, the third king of Israel, the third king of Judah. And we're going to borrow benefit from his life and the words that were spoken to him to cause him to adjust his life. And I'm going to argue this is a foundational fact to fuel your life. This is a conviction you need to have locked down. Look with me at 2 Chronicles chapter 16 and verse 9. This is the prophet of God to the king of Judah. The king's name is Asa. He's the grandson of Rehoboam. Rehoboam is the son of Solomon. 
Solomon is the great king, the wealthy king, David his father, the the courageous warrior poet king. Rehoboam comes to the throne with all kinds of potential. He forfeits that potential by ignoring the wisdom of God and buying into the foolish advice of his friends. And the kingdom was divided. Ten tribes went north under a new king, Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. Two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, under Rehoboam. Rehoboam, God says in chapter 12, verse 14, or 13, did evil in the sight of the Lord because he did not set his heart to seek the Lord. Abijah, his son, rules three years. Rehoboam, 17 years. Abijah, three years. Like his father, he did evil in the sight of the Lord. And then along comes Asa, who according to chapter 14 and verse 2, he did good and right in the sight of the Lord. So we're talking about a young king came to the throne. He's going to serve probably about 17 when he came to the throne. He's going to serve 41 years as the king of Judah. And the prophet is going to speak to him. The prophet of God is going to speak to him at the end of his life. This axiomatic reality one you can bank on and he needed to bank on, one that should inspire you and also sober you. Verse 9, for the eyes of the Lord, the eyes of Yahweh, move to and fro throughout the whole earth that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. The eyes of the Lord, meditatively think with me. Here's the declaration. Asa, here's the bottom line. The prophet of God is reminding you of the truth of God. God has eyes that search. God is omniscient. He knows everything. The point of this isn't that God knows everything. The point of this is that God has attention that he gives to those because he searches. He roams. His eyes run to and fro. It's proactive pursuit. It's not just God knows. God is seeking. Rehoboam did evil because he wasn't seeking God. Abijah did evil because he wasn't seeking God. You're going to see that Asa did good because he did seek God. And Asa needed to be reminded at the end of his life that God who is to be sought is a seeker. The eyes of the Lord, that's proactive, the attention of God, roams, it moves, it searches. I found a verse in Jeremiah chapter 5 that's akin to this idea where God challenges the people of Judah to search and to note someone. Listen to what it says, Jeremiah 5.1. God says to the people of Judah, run to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem, look and take note. Search your squares to see if you can find a man, one who does justice and seeks truth, so that I can pardon her. If you can just find one guy, search it out, and when you find that guy, take note. And if you find such a person, I will respond accordingly. It's that idea, God's eyes, his attention. Again, not omniscience, his proactive pursuit is looking for the person, actively seeking, 
the whole earth, meaning everyone, everywhere, everywhere for anyone. God searching so that he might do what? Show himself strong. Some of your translations say show strong support. Show means put on display. Active, obvious, undeniable, I'm going to put on display my support. Support has to do with help, provision, make up what is lacking, provide what is needed. I'm looking for the person in the whole earth, any person, anywhere, who is the kind of person that I can show myself supportive, help, strength. And it's God's support, which means it's divine, has no limit, it's infinite. Whatever the capacity is overwhelming. Show support means to strongly hold, to be on someone's side, to take their part, to strengthen them, to support them, to protect them, to defend them. Two days ago, Parker and I were fixing some of the light bulbs in the trees in our oak in the backyard, kind of those kind of party lights, and some of them over the last few years have gone out, and we found the box with the replacement lights, and so borrowed an extension ladder from the university because I didn't have one tall enough, and pushed it up into the oak tree, and I started to go up, and I said, Parker, you, you stabilize the bottom, and he said, Dad, there is no chance that if this thing moves, I'm going to stop it from falling. <laughs> but I'm thinking that since I'm lighter and you're heavier, you should hold the bottom. And so we did all the lights, Parker in the ladder, which is a challenge for him. Some of you know he struggles with illness and, and health and strength, and, but he managed to get up the ladder, and, and my job was to do what? Support it. Make sure that the project got done safely with the strength and support of the Father. This is the idea of God supporting you as you move through life. He's looking for the person to support, whether it's the holding of a ladder or to the crushing of an adversary, which is what we're going to see, the overcoming of a challenge you couldn't possibly overcome. The prophet comes to Asa and says, listen, Asa, you got to remember this. And the fact is he was in violation of this. This is the end of his life. Spurgeon says, whatever faith you have early in life is no guarantee for confidence and faith later in life. The enemy does not stop shooting his arrows when you get old. So no matter how victorious, how successful, how convictional you might be today, there's no guarantee that you will be locked down in that, in that conviction in a future day. Ace is at the end of his life. He's in his 36th year. He has lived a particular way, which has caused God to say he did good. Matter of fact, he's going to say in chapter 15, he was blameless in the sight of God. Until he wasn't. And the prophet of God came to Asa and said, listen, do not forget, and I'm saying this to you today, do not forget that the eyes of the Lord are constantly searching, looking for anyone, anywhere in the whole earth so that God who has everything and can do anything 
can show himself strong on your behalf. And then the qualifier for the one whose heart is completely his. Some of your Bibles will say perfect so that he can support the one whose heart is perfect towards him. Fully committed, another translation. To give strong support to those whose heart is blameless. Those who are fully devoted to him. They run to and fro. This is the New King James Version says, so that he can show himself strong to the heart who's loyal to him. We're going to spend our time today putting in context the application of a perfect heart, a completely his heart. What are the characteristics and what is the chief pursuit that will allow you to experience the support of God, the strength of God, the power of God, the provision of God, the security of God, and listen to me, the peace of God. Chapter 14, verse 1. Abijah slept with his fathers. That's the son of Rehoboam, Asa's father. I'm going to highlight some key words, give you some big ideas, and hopefully this will be helpful as you pursue peace and prosperity. Abijah slept with his fathers, and they buried him in the city of David. And his son Asa became king in his place. Third king, Asa's name means healer. Okay, And the reason he was named healer probably is because there was everything wrong in the country in terms of war and disturbance. Rehoboam had constant war. The Bible says in chapter 12, verse 15, there was wars at the end of it, wars between Rehoboam and Jeroboam continually. No peace. Constant war under Abijah's rule. And now you read of Asa, the healer. He became king in the place of Abijah's father. Now watch this. The land was undisturbed for 10 years during his days. You know what that equals? Peace. No disturbance. No war. Verse 2, Asa did good and right in the sight of the Lord his God. By removing... Verse 3, for he removed the foreign altars and high places, tore down the sacred pillars, cut down the asherim, commanded Judah to seek. Here's a key word, key concept, chief pursuit. Unlike Rehoboam who didn't seek, he commanded Judah to seek the Lord God of their fathers and to observe the law and the commandment. He removed, verse 5, the high places and the incense altars from all the cities of Judah. Now watch this. And the kingdom was what? undisturbed under him. You know what that equals? Peace. Verse 6, he built fortified cities in Judah since the land was, key word, undisturbed. You know what that equals? Peace. Because there's peace, there's productivity. There was no one at war with him during those years because the Lord had given him what? Rest. Strong support contextually involves the provision of peace, the absence of turbulence, undisturbed rest and peace. Ten years of it. Now listen, if I could forecast and you believed me and it was true and I had the power executed, listen, in California, in Los Angeles County, we're going to have ten years of undisturbed life 
living. Would you vote for that? I would be, if you believe me, you would elect me. Because peace is a priority that promotes blessing and benefit. And God says, because Asa sought the Lord, and we're going to talk about the practices he promoted, God gave undisturbed, decade-long peace. Verse 7, For it said to Judah, Let us build these cities and surround them with walls, towers, gates, and bars. Watch this. The land is still ours because, key word, we have sought Yahweh our God. We have sought Him. And look at what happens. He has given us rest on every side. So they built and they prospered. The path to peace, productivity, prosperity is the result of a completely His heart that actively seeks him and prioritizes practices that reflect the priority of God in your life. You want to know peace and prosperity. You want to know productivity. You want to enjoy as a result the benefit of victory in your life, enjoyable living, productive living, victorious living. This is the pathway. It is a mind state on him. And the mind stayed on him as a seeking after him heart. I'm looking for somebody whose heart is completely mine. Not my behavior, not my head. This is, this is about my heart. This is, Spurgeon said, the seat of my affections. This is the source of my intentions, my heart. And God is searching, proactively seeking. A person whose heart is seeking him and who has a practice and pattern. And I'm going to give you three things to think about, two of them today, one next week. Priorities to practice that represent a heart that is seeking God, fully devoted, loyal, consistent, so you can enjoy the blessing, the shalom of God which is the absence of disturbance and the provision of bounty and blessing. This is not a Joel Osteen sermon. It is a biblical representation of the heart of God for those who seek God. Three things. I'm going to give them to you and then we'll unpack them. The priority to pursue is seeking. The practices to prioritize are ruthlessly removing, number one, the word removing, and I'm going to add the word ruthlessly. Number two, obeying, practically obeying and courageously acting. So I'm going to give you two words, obeying and acting. I'm going to put them together. That's next week. Obeying the word of God, which is what you see in verse Uh, Four, he commanded them to seek the Lord God of their fathers and to observe the law and the commandments. I want to come back to that. That's a whole session. I want to talk about practically obeying, constantly seeking. I'm going to talk about meditation next Sunday. This Sunday, ruthlessly removing, 
and desperately depending. All right, so there's the, the idea is removing and depending. And the one tucked in the middle because of the order of the scripture here, obeying. We're going to do that next week and courageously acting out of what we are seeking to obey. Ruthlessly removing. I want you to notice this. The very first thing the good man did who was considered right in the sight of God, number th- verse 3, verse 14, he removed the foreign altars and the high places. He tore down the sacred pillars and he cut down the asherim. Verse 5, he removed the high places and the incense altars, watch this, from all the cities of Judah. So it's not, it's comprehensive. It's relentless and it's ruthless. Get the words. He tore them down. He cut them down. He removed them. Let's talk about the Asherim. The Asherim was a fertility goddess worshipped by the, the, the pagan nations around them. They... Asherim had to do with the God, the idol that you worshiped so that crops would grow, the harvest would be big, so that children would be born, fertility goddess. And there was a pole that was created to represent her, an Asherim pole. And so they would set that at the worship place, the places where the idol would be worshiped in groves of trees, they would gather to worship an idol, the Asherim, the pole, that wooden pole carved in the image of the fertility goddess would be appealed to, worshipped, sacrificed to, pagan actions taken in order to motivate this God to bless these people. Asherim is an idol. I'm going to tear that down. I'm going to remove the places where that idol is worshipped. Let's talk idol for a minute. Idol, by definition, is anything that substitutes for God in priority or a, a means of security. I'm relying on the idol to take care of me. I'm relying on the idol to provide for me. I'm relying on the idol, and I'm making the idol my priority. An idol is anything that you substitute God for. Idols, people and things that you worship over God, people and things that take priority over God and are security instead of God. Anybody, anything, whether it's your bank account, whether it's your job, whether it's the person that you're dating, whether it's the person that you're married to, whether it's the children that you are responsible for whatever it is, if it substitutes as a priority, if it becomes a means of dependence, it is, in God's view, a rival. A rival. I'm going to have the privilege of giving some marriage principles next Saturday. We're going to talk about foundational things, and one of the foundational things in marriage is you establish an exclusive, unrivaled relationship. There is no biblical marriage that has competition in it, and there is no biblical worship that has competition with God. And what Asa did, completely his heart, early in his rule, comes to the throne is he removes any competition to God. 
All of it. Everywhere. Nothing left in the nation. Number one, the competitor to God, and he removed the places that promote competition to God. Foreign altars in high places, locations and places that promote these rivals or promote the pursuit of them. Listen, there's things that rival God that are promoted in certain places through certain instruments. The Asherim, the poles, the sacred pillars were paraphernalia that promoted idolatrous worship. Listen, you want to know peace and prosperity? Ask God for an objective assessment by the conviction of His Holy Spirit. Is there anything in my life that's a rival to God as a priority in my life? And are there things that I am doing or places I am going that promote that competition? Because a completely His heart A blessed by God with peace and productivity life is a life that says, I'm destroying that, I'm removing that, I am renouncing that. Ruthlessly. I chose the word ruthless because there's no negotiation. I don't know if you're like I am, but there's some things that you look at it and you go, man, I like this. There's value in this. But if it competes with God, it doesn't matter what you paid for it. It doesn't matter how much of a contribution or dependence. Man, if I let this go, I'm really vulnerable. No, you're not. Because God says, I'll show myself strong. I'll hold the ladder. I'll overcome the obstacles. But you've got to let it go. You've got to remove it. You've got to deal with it. You're going to feel the word ruthless strongly in verse 16 of chapter 15. I want you to just jump ahead. Because you might even say ruthless and radical. Verse 16, referring to Asa, and it's the same theme, same idea. Verse 16, he also removed, we're in the removing business, he also removed Makkah, the mother of King Asa. Now, technically, she's the queen mother, so she's the grandmother. He removed Makkah, the the mother of King Asa, from the position of queen mother because she had made a, watch this word, a horrid image as an Asherah, that's the fertility goddess, and Asa cut down her horrid image, crushed it, and burned it at the brook Kidron. All right, the brook Kidron carried the sewage from the temple. So he goes to grandmom's house. And he says, you have been removed from your position as queen mother. How would you go to your grandmom's house saying, that title, done with that. And that, that little deal over there that competes with God, I'm destroying that. That's a horrid image. I don't care who you are. I don't care what it is and how valuable it is to you. It's got to go. And then he uses these words, verse 16. He crushed it and he burned it. I mean, it wasn't good enough to just throw it in the garbage. All of this is symbolic and demonstrative of the passion of a person whose heart 
is determined to prioritize God over everything and anyone. It's my grandmother. It's her favorite image. It's a competitor. She's a promoter. And I can't have her in that position of influence in my life. Nothing that competes with God. Ruthless removing. Radical removing. Relentlessly, completely. Thirdly, or actually secondly for today, because we're going to come back to number two, but it's thirdly in my notes here. The, the next big category that is revealed in his behavior is the idea of a completely his heart is not just a ruthlessly removing com- competition to God, but it's desperately depending on God. All right, you may not recognize this, but it's disloyal to God when you trust somebody else or something else instead of God. The close of this story of Asa, these words of the prophet are meant to remind him and to confront him about a priority he had abandoned. If you read these three chapters, what you will see is he was faithful and committed to the removing of the competition. What is also demonstrated is he started out depending upon God and then he started depending upon something other than God. Category number two, practice to pursue, ruthlessly removing. Number two, desperately depending. Notice what the Bible says in verse seven, or verse eight rather, of chapter 14. I'm going to set the context. This is a life lesson early in Asa's reign. Verse 8, Asa had an army of 300,000 from Judah bearing large seals, shields and spears and 280,000 from Benjamin bearing shields and wielding bows. All of them were valiant warriors. Now, How many total valiant warriors does he have? 580,000. 300,000 and 280,000. Verse 9. Now Zerah the Ethiopian came out against them with an army of a million men. Question, is a million more than 580,000? It's a lot more. The odds are not in his favor. And besides that, they have chariots. They have 300 chariots. Implied, they have horses. And they have power and and capacity. They They have armament that we do not have. We got valiant guys, but we don't have chariots and the stuff that go. We got big shields. And we have some bows, but we don't have a million. Verse 10, so Asa went out to meet him. And they drew up. So you got 10 years of peace, and then you got this life lesson, this punctuating experience in life. The enemy comes, the valley of Zarephath at Marisha, verse 11. Watch this. This is the key verse as it relates to this point. Asa called to Yahweh his God. And this is what he says. Lord, Yahweh, there is no one besides you 
to help in the battle between the powerful and those who have no strength. Now look up for a minute. Quick question. Does he have nobody? That's 580,000. That's something. But what he recognizes is no matter how many natural assets I have, they're not sufficient. It's as if I don't have anything. I'm desperately needy without you active and providing and supporting. I have no strength. So help us, O Yahweh, our God. Key words, for we trust in you. And in your name have come out against this multitude. O Yahweh, you are our God. Let no man prevail against you. Now, I wrote over that verse in my Bible, desperately dependent, completely trusting. A good man who enjoys support from God, a good woman who does right in the sight of God, is a person who says, I don't care how many earthly assets I have, I'm counting on one asset. It's as if I have nothing. Because I am exclusively, not only devoted to you, I'm dependent on you. Watch what God does. Verse 12. I love the words. So, the, so Yahweh routed the Ethiopians before Asa and before Judah. And they fled. And Asa and the people who were with him pursued them as far as Gerar. And so many Ethiopians fell that they could not recover, for they were, I like this word, shattered before the Lord and before his army. And they carried away much plunder. You're going to see plunder again. Verse 14, they destroyed all the cities around Gerar. For the dread of the Lord, the dread of Yahweh had fallen on them. And they despoiled all the cities, for there was much plunder in them. You know what plunder is? Spoils of war. You know who routed the enemy? God routed the enemy. God shattered the opposition. And God gifted his people with the plunder and the prosperity and the blessing of that victory. You know what this is? This is victorious living in opposition and in challenge to the things that would destroy and ruin and harm and hurt me. Don't miss this. This is in your Bible. So you will have a locked down conviction. God's looking proactively, endlessly, everywhere for anyone Red and yellow, black and white, male, female. I'm looking for a person whose heart is devoted to me. And that devotion is validated by the priority that they pursue me with and the dependence they rely on me with. That's what I'm looking for. And that's the person that I will bless with shalom. 20 years are going to go by of peace. Had 10, had this altercation, big deal. Look to God. Now we're going to enjoy a 20-year run of peace. Verse uh, 5 of chapter 15 kind of 
I, I didn't share this with you, a little commentary on what it was like before Asa. In those times, there was no peace to him who went out or to him who came in for many disturbances, disturbances afflicted. See that word, afflicted. All the inhabitants of the lands. Nations, nation was crushed by nation and city by city. For God troubled them with every kind of distress. Now, this is kind of going back in time so that you can get a feel for life without peace. And the reason for the absence of peace is because the shalom giver isn't providing peace. He's afflicting with conflict. And the reason he's afflicting with conflict is because people are trading Yahweh for something not Yahweh. The pagan culture has influenced the people of God. Doesn't that happen in our culture? Here we sit, believers in the center of a culture that is chasing everything but the God of heaven. And so it's possible, whether you're in school or in the workplace or in your neighborhood, to be influenced by the culture to chase and prioritize something not God. And when the chips are down and things are overwhelming, you rely on something other than God. You work a deal. You solve your problem and you ignore the God who says, I want you to trust me completely. I want you to be desperately dependent on me. And this absence of peace preceded peace and it was a reminder of the dangers of not seeking God by relying on him and ruthlessly removing the things that compete with him. Chapter 16. I'm going to plant the flag for this Sunday. Big idea, seek God. Practice, remove the stuff that competes with God, no matter who it is or what it is. Number two, rely desperately on Yahweh, your God. No matter how many you may have or how many other options you may pursue, abandon them and rely on Him. Verse 16, chapter 16, verse 1. In the third, well, first of all, let's read verse 19. There was no more war until the 35th year of Asa's reign. So that's 20 years on top of the 10, and you have this little sandwiched event. So you've got 10 years, peace, shalom. Building, prosperity, freedom, undisturbed, battle with the Ethiopian Zera, lesson learned, God routes 20 years. Would you vote for me if I said I got 30 years ahead of us? We're going to have to go through a little bit of a bump in the, line, in the way, but we're going to have a 20-year run after that. You would vote for me because that's a great way to live. But in the 36th year, chapter 16, of Asa's reign, Basha, king of Israel, that's the northern kingdom, ten tribes, the idolatrous kings of the north, Basha is that king, came up against Judah and fortified Ramah, came up against fortified Ramah in order to prevent anyone from going out or coming in to Asa, king of Judah. So you know what that's called? A blockade. And the blockade is set up to keep the people who are loyal to God and the northern tribes from coming to Jerusalem and worshiping God. He's going to cut them off. He's going to deny access and benefit. A blockade. Verse 2. 
Asa brought out silver and gold from the treasuries of the house of Yahweh in the king's house and sent them to Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, that's Syria, who lived in Damascus, Damascus, Syria, saying, let there be a treaty between you and me as between my father and your father. Behold, I have sent you silver and gold. Where did he get the silver and gold? His house and God's house. So he's using his stuff, and now he's using God's stuff to buy an alliance. You make a treaty with me, and here are the benefits you will receive. Break your treaty with Basha, king of Israel, so that he will withdraw from me. So Benadad listened to King Asa, sent the commanders of his armies against the cities of Israel. They conquered the cities of Dan and Abelmaim and all the store cities of Naphtali. And when Basha heard of it, he ceased fortifying Ramah and stopped his work. All right, now look up for a minute. Who did Asa rely on? a pagan king from Syria. He spent his money and all of, first king says, and all of God's money, talking about the treasuries of the house, the temple of God. Was he successful? Politically, you would look at that and go, man, smart move. You politically succeeded. You achieved your goal. Blockade was broken. You get the timber that they were going to use for building the wall and the obstacles and the barriers. Man, this was a good plan. Now listen, just a parenthetical. Even if you look successful from man's perspective, from God's perspective, it may be another story. He's going to use his assets. He's going to leverage a pagan king in order to provide support for the people of God. Now listen, be like my wife hiring my enemy to protect her. You wouldn't say Karen's loyal to me. This is the people of God who should be dependent upon God. Instead, they're hiring the enemy of God, pagan king Ben-Hadad, to protect. Let's read a little further. Verse 7. At that time, Hanani the seer, that's a prophet, came to Asa, king of Judah, And he said to him, watch these words, because you've relied on the king of Aram, king of Syria, and have not relied on the Lord your God, therefore the army of the king of Syria, Aram, has escaped out of your hand. Now don't miss this. You think you're successful, but actually that transaction and compromise cost you a lost opportunity. I would have given you that kingdom, but you forfeited that opportunity. Because you relied on him instead of him. Verse 8. Were not the Ethiopians and the Lubim an immense army with very many chariots and horsemen? So he's now going back in time 20 years earlier and saying, hey, did you forget this? Were they not a big army? Yet because you relied, verse 8, key words, because you relied on on Yahweh, he delivered them into your hand. Now here's verse 9. For the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the whole earth that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. You have acted foolishly in this. Indeed, from now on, you will have wars. Peace is gone. Shalom is ended. For the rest of your reign, what you could have had, you forfeited. Because God's looking for the man or woman whose heart 
is ruthlessly removing competition and desperately depending on God alone. And for those who don't, they forfeit a blessing, opportunity, productivity, prosperity. Here's another word, victory. This is not rocket science. This is not a complex pursuit and practice. This is God, you have no competition. This is God, I have no security or solution but you. I want to show you one last thing, and then we'll be done. So look at what Asa does as a consequence of that confrontation. Verse 10, Asa was angry with the seer, and he put him in prison, for he was enraged at him for this. And Asa oppressed some of the people at the same time. Now look up for a minute. If you're not repentant when God's steward or servant confronts you, this is always your reaction. Instead of repentance and brokenness, it's anger and oppression. You don't want to hear it. Chapter 16, now the, verse 11, Now the acts of Asa from first to last, behold, they're written in the book of the kings of Judah and Israel. Verse 12, in the 39th year of his reign, he only reigned 41, 39th year, he became diseased in his feet, and his disease was severe. Now watch these words. They are sobering, humbling, and convicting. Yet even in his disease, he did not seek Yahweh, but the physicians. Asa is meant to call God's people to a bottom line. You have a covenant God who's anxiously and relentlessly seeking you. Seek him. Remove competition. Rely exclusively on him. And allow him to produce peace, prosperity, and victory. Set your heart to seek the Lord. Can you say amen to that? All right, so I would encourage you to do some business with God and do some inventory. I would get with somebody not you who loves you and knows you and ask this hard question. Is there anything you see in me that is promoting a competitor to God? What is it? Where is it? And help me address it. Do you see any place in my life where I'm maneuvering and self-depending? I'm working it out because I'm afraid to trust God to provide what I don't have and desperately need. Have a conversation. Don't get angry. Humble yourself. Do business with God so you can enjoy victory, prosperity, and peace. If I could do that for you, you would vote for me. God said, I'll do that for you. Worship me. Father, thank you for the opportunity this morning to open your word. Thank you for the vivid pictures. Lord, we can't throw stones at Asa. Sometimes we are Asa. We're thankful for the victorious places that we see in his life, and we're saddened by the end of his life. Help us to be faithful to the end. Help us to make adjustments today. 
Help us to benefit from a strong God who's looking to be supportive of challenges and circumstances in our life. We want to be devoted, and we want to show it, not just say it. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Have a great morning.